uh, change is uh, hard. Uh, it's hard to have changes in your life. It's hard to have big things shift, different things going on. Uh, this week on Monday morning, uh, I got up like I always do and I uh, was drinking my coffee and I was sitting there ha- having read my reading for the morning and uh, the boys come in and Asher and Jed leave for school uh, without me uh, because Asher is now driving. And they went, see you later. <laughs> basically, we don't need you, we're good, we'll see you later, and they walked out the door, and I went, how did that happen? They just left, and they went to school, I've been dropping them off at school most days uh, for the last couple years, and so all of a sudden, it was like, dad, see you later, uh, then Monday evening, about uh, a little after five, Jed and Asher, and now with their youngest brother in tow, 11-year-old Quinn, walk in, and they say, uh, can we go out to eat tonight, and I was like, well, yeah, maybe I need to check with mom. Uh, we don't really have a plan for dinner. Maybe, maybe we could do that. And then they go, no, no, no. By we, we just mean us, us three. <laughs> what? Yeah, Asher's going to drive us. We're just going to go out to eat together. And I went, yeah, I, I guess so. And they walked out the door and then Joanna came in and I was kind of like, what just happened? When did this change? Apparently this change happened on Monday. Uh, Monday morning, that there's now this freedom that comes with a driver's license and being able to go. And suddenly it was like, whoa, this is hard. Like suddenly it seems like my whole life changed very much with what's happening with the boys and their ages and where they are. And so change can be really hard. Uh, I was thinking about just that in general. And I was even thinking about to when I first started. Uh, been here as the pastor at Church of the Apostles for 12 and a half years. And I can tell you the first year, first year and a half, um, there was probably my vague recollection at this point is that somebody was always upset at something. And that was just because little changes and things that were happening and why are we doing this and why like this and why in that way. And that's that's what it felt like to me. That's not the the fullness at all of, of what was happening. But I say that, and please hear me, I say that not out of like bitterness or frustration or looking back and being... It dawned on me this week, just thinking about that season, that change is really hard. And even little changes or even good changes or even things that need to happen that we feel like God is leading us into can be really difficult. Change is hard when things start to shift. And some of you know that in much greater ways than I do, even at recent times in your life or the last couple of years. Uh, Lots of things have changed and lots of things are shifting and it feels that way and things coming at you. And change can be really difficult. And I was thinking about that in relation to where we are in Jesus's ministry. If you've been with us, what we've been doing since the beginning of the year is we're kind of looking through the life and ministry of Jesus chronologically. We started right at the beginning, uh, looked at John 1 right at the beginning, and then we're kind of working our way through about what Jesus does and where he goes and and the things that are happening. And the way I've been kind of framing that each week is, is really we're breaking it up into three years of his ministry, roughly three years of Jesus's earthly ministry. And we're coming to the end of the first year, which we often refer to as the year of preparation or even the year of obscurity. Jesus isn't as well known. He's just starting to to be public and and preaching and teaching and now miracles. And all those things are suddenly being ramped way up and really getting close. There's not a clear delineation of when this happens, but we go from that first to second year, from the year of preparation to kind of the year of popularity. The crowds are coming. And Jesus is teaching and he's doing miracles and he's performing these things. And as that happens, it's like it's picking up steam. And it's like it's starting to go faster and faster. And things are happening. And what happens 
is a lot of change is coming and it's coming fast. And all of a sudden with that comes some pushback to Jesus and the things he's saying and he's doing. And as I was thinking about where we get to this point and that's happening in this way, uh, probably could summarize it really well, or, or, or the, the author of Hebrews summarizes it real well, better than I could. And what I mean by that is Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 says this, Long ago at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And so what Hebrews 1 says is that when Jesus comes and he's walking amongst us, we see God. He is the exact imprint of the very nature of God. He is the radiance of the glory of God. And so what you had is it says that in these days before, long ago and many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Long ago and many times in many ways. So God spoke and it was his word given to us through different prophets over a long period of time. And it was a little piece here and a piece here and a piece here. And God's revealing what he's like. But when Jesus comes, it's in fullness. It goes from like reading about who God is and and hearing his word. And it is his word and seeing bits and pieces of it. It's like seeing it kind of in a dimly lit room to now being in fullness. Or maybe a better example would be, uh, I remember being in school for architecture. My undergraduate degree is in architecture. And I remember taking so many classes about uh, historical buildings and, and the way they built them and where they are and seeing these pictures. And then a few years after I graduated, I got to go to Europe. And I got to backpack through Europe. And all of a sudden, these things that I'd only seen in 2D on a page were now in front of me. I'm now standing in front of the Colosseum. Or or I'm walking into these places and you're experiencing it in a fullness that you've never seen before. And that's what happens when Jesus steps in. And he starts to teach and preach. And he does, as it tells us over and over in the Gospels, not as the scribes and the Pharisees did, but one with authority. He wasn't a teacher that was taking the ways that God had revealed himself in the past and going, and this is what we know about God. And this is what we see when he steps in. He is God. He is the logos, the the divine truth walking amongst us. And as he does, it's really hard for some people. It's hard for people that even love God and are seeking to know him and to follow him. But Jesus is exploding their categories. And they're being overwhelmed with how fast this is coming at them. And all of a sudden people start to push back and they're going, wait a second. How can you say that? And and that's not the way we thought about it. And that's not the way we thought it worked and how these things go. And Jesus is suddenly stepping in and there's this shift happening. And so it leads to questions and it leads to challenges and it leads to people pushing back and people getting upset. Oftentimes people get upset at grace because they want to put things in what we do and simple categories and then all of a sudden jesus starts to explode some of those things and we saw that in the first half of what we're going to look at today in the call of levi but we're going to pick up with the second half of that today and there's this pushback and this question that comes with jesus about fasting and he's saying something here that that there's a change taking place and they're trying to get their head around it and so the way i want us to look at verses 33 to the end of the chapter, this kind of conversation he has with the religious leaders of the day is how does he explain this change that's taking place and what does it mean for us? 
Because it's a beautiful, wonderful picture of what Jesus says in the midst of all this. And so let's look at this passage together and what that question, that pushback there comes as things seem to be changing so fast to those in the moment. And so look at what it says in verse 33. And so remember, this is still right there with Matthew. The context seems to be that it's still at that same gathering in in Matthew's house. And they ask him this question. And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And so the question really is, Jesus, why are your disciples not fasting in the same way that John the Baptist are? Or or why are your disciples not fasting in the same way that we, the religious leaders and our disciples fast? We're all discipling them in a certain way to do these fasts like this. Why are yours not doing it? And there's, there's an implication here that Jesus and his disciples are doing it wrong. So how are you doing this and why are you doing it like that? And so before we even kind of get to that question, I want us just to think about just briefly what fasting is and why it's important and where it comes with, why this was even a question, why this is a big deal. And so when we think about the idea of fasting, fasting is abstaining from something that's a regular part of life. Usually we think of it in the, the realm of food, food and drink, what we take into our bodies, the way we eat, we get sustenance. And, and, and certainly that's what they're talking about here. And that's kind of the most common way in which we think about it. But when we abstain from certain things in our life, we take food out for, say, a meal or two or a day or a couple of days. And we start to remove those. It alerts our body that we're in need, that we need food to live, that we need drink to live, that we need sustenance to be able to continue to operate. And as, the, as we feel that need and we come into that moment, it alerts us that our ultimate need is for God. That just as we're needy people that need to have food and sustenance in our life, we also need God to exist. And fasting becomes a way in which as we we remove some of these things and we come before God and it reminds us of our need and we come back to this understanding of who God is, that we desperately need him. And it focuses us instead of those moments of those hunger pains of I need the sustenance, we turn to God and we begin to pray. And begin to seek his face and meet him in those moments. And it's a spiritual discipline that helps bring us to that place. Now, in the, in the Old Testament, there were different times of fasting and things that were set. And, and oftentimes it, it took on not just uh, general need, but it was in specific situations where there was a time of mourning, where there was a loss, where there was a struggle, where there were bad things happening and they would go before God and you would fast and pray and seek the Lord in the midst of difficulty, in different situations. And in doing so, it it sparks that need in you, but then it also produces hope. It helps point us to the expectation that God is going to answer and that he is going to meet our needs and he is going to meet us in the midst of those times. And so fasting was a regular part of, of their worship. And so fasting was happening in a lot of different instances in different places. But I also want you to think about Uh, the immediate context of the people of this day in which Jesus is operating. Talked about this multiple times since we started this this series at the very beginning. But remember at the time that the Jewish people, the Israelites, are an occupied people. The Romans have come in and taken control. And so they live in an occupied territory with this great empire over them that has a very heavy hand that you do not cross them. They tax you at great rates and all these things. And so a lot of times what was happening is fasting and mourning and going before God for deliverance, that God would send 
uh, the promised one that they've long been expecting, that the Messiah would come and, and uh, bring them freedom from this uh, oppressive government. And, and we've talked about how the expectation of the Messiah is that they would come and lead rebellion and, and set things up and bring God's kingdom right then and there in the moment. And so a lot of the fasting at the time was around that, of going before God and pleading that he would change their circumstances, that he would see them in their need and meet them there. And so you see this as kind of the part of the background of what's happening. Now, just for clarification, what Jesus says here about fasting, we do want to make sure that we remember that Jesus was fasting regularly. It wasn't that he wasn't fasting. In fact, we saw early in our series at the very beginning, his preparation for his ministry, he goes out in the wilderness and he fasts for 40 days and 40 nights. Uh, we saw in John chapter four, when Jesus meets with the woman at the well and then his disciples come back and they say, did anybody give him anything to eat? And he says, I have food that you know not about. It's to do the will of my father who sent me. It seems that Jesus is even fasting in that moment and he's doing this regularly. And so it's not that he's not fasting or he's not doing that reliance on God in all things. In fact, Jesus is doing it perfectly in every way. But one of the things that had grown up at this time around a lot of these things is the religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees would kind of put rules on everything, right? God says that there should be different seasons of fasting. And so then they take, they ramp everything up and and put rules on top of rules on top of rules. And sometimes we give the Pharisees a, a bad shake and we go, man, no, no, don't be like a Pharisee. And they're so awful and all their rules. But I think there's, there's two sides of all of it, right? I think a lot of times the Pharisees were just seeking to honor God. And so they would put these rules in place because they wanted to put those things there and, and make sure that we don't forget to fast and have certain days of fast. And so they would start to make it kind of routine. And this is what you do and you fast in these ways. And so what you see in the context is Jesus and his disciples are not fasting at their set schedule of all these ways. And they're seeing Jesus and his disciples not following it in the exact same way. And they say, well, even John the Baptist, who Jesus has kind of put his stamp of approval on. uh, John the Baptist fast and his disciples fast and the Pharisees fast and we're doing it. Why are your disciples not? And so look at what Jesus says to that question in verse 34 and 35. Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. And so I want you to consider kind of the backdrop of a lot of the fasting that's happening at the time. And they're, they're, they're praying to God, and they're mourning over their circumstances, and they're asking God for deliverance, and they're, they're, they're crying out for the long-expected Messiah to come. And here Jesus is standing in the midst of all of them, ushering in this new age. And he's, he's giving sight to the blind and he's healing the lepers and he's doing the things that all the prophets said that the Messiah would do. And then he says, how can you fast when the bridegroom is here? And what Jesus is alerting them to is he's ushering in the new age that he is the long promised Messiah that they've been looking for. He says, what do you mean you're going to fast and pray and ask God for the Messiah that would come in this moment when I am here. And he uses this language here when he says, the bridegroom, how can you not, uh, can wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? And I want you to just think about what he's saying there. Jesus will do this a lot. In fact, he'll kind of alert people as they're listening to him in the way he talks. If you have eyes to see and ears to hear. And I think what he's saying when he says the bridegroom 
Uh, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? All throughout the Old Testament, if you know the Old Testament, as many as those there would have, you see that God equates himself to the groom in Israel and his people, the bride. And you see that all throughout the Old Testament. You see it in Jeremiah, in Isaiah, in Ezekiel, in Hosea. Over and over, God pictures himself as the perfect husband to a wayward bride, Israel, as they turn and go to different different idols and different things, and they, they, they ignore God and the world that he created, and they do that over and over. But here Jesus says, how can you fast when the bridegroom is with you? And I think he's making a very uh, kind of veiled claim, but those that have ears to hear would hear it, that the groom is now here. And you don't fast in the same way when the groom is with you. There's an excitement. There's a glorious, wonderful truth of what is happening that is now so spectacular. How can my disciples fast in this moment? And he's alerting them that he is now here and he is now with us. And so like going to uh, 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 just think about the excitement of that for a second. That he has arrived, right? Go, go back to uh, like Luke chapter 2. We, we read this looked at it around Christmas. We always go back to that passage of the shepherds out in the fields at night, right? And suddenly the angel appears to the shepherd and says, fear not, good news of great joy for unto you today is born a savior in the city of David. And and they proclaim to these uh, shepherds that are out in the field. And all of a sudden the skies open up and it says a multitude of angels started praising God. Glory to God in the highest And they are announcing that Jesus is here. And there's this excitement that is happening. And and I feel like when when I hear Jesus saying to these people, you can't fast when the bridegroom is there with you. That it's the same sort of excitement. Do you understand what is now here that Jesus is here? That the God of the universe has stepped into his creation. And that this is so wonderful and glorious. And so he says to them, you you can't... Uh, make the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them. And then after that, he, he tells a parable, right? Look at verse 36 and following. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the wineskins and it will be spilled. And the skins will be destroyed, but new wine must be put into fresh wine skins. And no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. And so I want you to think about what Jesus is saying here. He tells us this parable kind of in two ways about putting the, the piece of new garment on an old one or putting new wine in old wine skins. And he says that doesn't work. And you can't do that. And I think part of what he's getting at is something new is here with Jesus arriving. The fulfillment of all God's promises are now coming together in Jesus. And as those are happening, and as this new age is dawning, it means there is a new work that is happening, a fundamental shift that is so seismic in the way that you operate and the way that you see things, you can't go back to the old. I think of it, uh, I'm going to botch the quote. But C.S. Lewis used to say that, that uh, God doesn't come to give us uh, better information. He doesn't come to improve us. He comes to make us new. That, that we don't just need new information, that we need a rebirth. That we need to be made new. We, mean, we need to go from death to life. 
And I think part of what Jesus is getting at and saying here is now that I'm here, this new work is happening and we're not going back to the old way. The way that you think it was working, it has now expanded so great in what I'm doing and me arriving and why I'm here. And so I want you just to think about that for a second. How he doesn't fit the mold the way they're thinking and even in the context here of what's happening. And so just think about uh, Old Testament, the Pharisees, the religious leaders that are there that are holding so fast to the law and the temple and the sacrifices and all the, all the things that God has given, all good things that God has given that he can be near a sinful people. A, a way for us to see what God is like and his holiness, to understand our sin and our separation. All of that is going on in the sacrificial system and in the temple and in the laws and all these things, right? And so as the law that God gives us, he gives us the law uh, for a myriad of reasons. Uh, he gives us the law uh, to show us what he's like and how his world functions, right? God gives us this as the creator says, I made everything and this is how it works. And out of his grace and love for us as sinful people who've rebelled against him, he goes, no, this is the way it works. And so he gives us the law to show us what he is like and the way the world functions. He gives us the law to constrain evil, right? Guardrails that we don't just go kind of flying off the road, right? You know, guardrails are there for you start to get off and you hit that and it'll keep you. Yes, there'll be damage. You'll bump up against it, but it keeps you from going off the road. And so the law was there to constrain evil, but it's also there to show us where we failed. Part of the reason that God gives the law in the way he does is that we would see that we haven't lived up to it, that it would alert us to our great need, to our sinfulness, the ways in which we haven't done the perfect way in which God has designed things. That in our sinful rebellion, we've missed it. But then ultimately, the law is given to point us in our need to a savior, to the one that will come, Jesus. And so God gives us the law for all these things in those ways. But in our sinfulness, and Jesus is going to bump up against this over and over as he preaches and teaches and he goes and he loves people that are right in front of him. In our sinfulness, we make the law the way that we're good with God. We take it, this thing that God gave us to show us that we can't achieve it and that we desperately need a savior to come to fix it for us. And instead we make it all about us. If I do these things and I do them well enough, then God will accept me. And I insert myself right back in the middle of the story rather than seeing that God's saying, no, 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 I'm going to send one that's going to fix it for you. I am going to come myself to set things right. And so what we do is we stick ourselves right in the middle. And that's what's happened here in so many ways. Even the context here with, with Matthew and them sitting there and eating and the Pharisees are grumbling. Why do you eat with people like that? That's not what us good religious people do. We don't eat with people like that. Why don't you fast the way we fast? Why are you not doing it in that way? Don't you know that this is what it looks like? And they started to make the law as a way to justify themselves before God. They've missed the very point of what it was after, right? E even in fasting, to come to a place of understanding your need, that I can't do this, that I desperately need God to even exist, to draw breath, to have anything good in my life. And instead they make it of a way to make themselves look good. Look at what I'm doing. And they start to miss the very point of the things that God has given them. We, in our sinfulness, insert ourselves and make it all about us. 
There's a, there's a term that I introduced to in a book years ago called the routinization of charisma. And what it means is over time, things that become routine, things that were exciting and true, and you saw this thing, and there it is, and over time it becomes routine. And you start to do it over and over, and you lose the reason you were doing it to begin with. And I think that's what happens. You start to fast out of a need for God, but then suddenly it slides into, I fast because I'm a good person. And I fast more than that person, so I'm probably better than them. And then suddenly, all of a sudden, you're fasting so that you can feel better about what you're doing rather than realizing you desperately need God. And how easy it is to slip into that kind of thinking. You see it in everything. Like we get kind of tunnel vision. I've used this example before, but it just happened this week. I've been coaching my son's basketball team. And the other day, they had nine players, so I had to play with them. (laughs) And so I'm going through trying to play defense and showing them what we're doing on offense. And I'm guarding this kid, sweet kid that I'm trying to get to be more aggressive. And so four different times, I just stopped playing defense to let him shoot the ball, right? I step back. I'm five feet from him. He's wide open. And he's so busy looking at where he's got to pass the ball next in the play that we're running. And finally, I stopped. Stop. I said, why are you not shooting it? Like, coach, we're running this play. To do What? Well, the score. So shoot the ball, man. You're wide open. The whole point is for us to get a good shot, right? He'd missed the big idea. He got so tunnel vision of I've got to run this play to do this in this way that he forgot he's supposed to score. It's the same thing. They start to fast instead of it being that I desperately need God and to be reminded of my need and to focus on him and how he is the giver of life and everything else. And I suddenly made it about me. And look at how good I am. And I'm doing my fasting and all these. And they start to operate in this way. And these things start to build up and grow around everything. And then Jesus steps in and starts going, wait a second. And he starts to bring them back to the truth. And he starts to show them the reality of who he is and what he's doing. He doesn't come to give more rules, more tweaks to the system. Right? They want him to do that. The religious leaders say, ah, you're a good teacher and you're a rabbi. Tell us. Right? Give us some more rules so that we can take up these rules and be even better. But that's not why Jesus came. He didn't come to give us more rules so that we can save ourselves. He came to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. He, became, he came to us and took on flesh and walked amongst us and does all of it perfectly because we haven't done it perfectly. And he steps in and he begins to show us that. And he begins to bring them out of that. Jesus comes because you and I are sinners in need and not because we're pretty good and we just need a few more tweaks and a little more advice, but we need to be made new. We need to be reborn. And so Jesus steps in to do for us what we never could do for ourselves. And the truth is that change is hard. It's hard to come to a place where you admit I'm not a pretty good person that just needs some tweaks here and there. I am a desperate sinner that can do nothing on my own. And that's hard to hear. That's hard to see. That's hard to come face to face with. And so when Jesus steps in and and they're putting people in categories, we don't eat with people like that. And why are you not fasting the way we fast? And Jesus is like, I've got something else here. He steps into the middle of that and there's a new thing that is dawning in what he's doing. 
And they don't like it. They don't want to hear that. I think even at the end here when he says, and no one after drinking the old wine desires the new, for he says the old is good. I think a lot of the people sitting around the table and watching what was happening are standing there with their hands on their hips going, well, we don't fast like that. And I don't eat with people like that. And they don't want the new wine that says you're saved by grace that's radically humbling, that brings you to your knees to say, I can't do this and only God can do this because they feel pretty good about themselves. They're happy to drink the old wine of like, it's my performance. And I'm glad I'm not like those people. But Jesus steps in the middle and he goes, that's that's not the way this works. And he starts to explode their categories. And I want you to understand why that is so wonderful and why that is so radically freeing. You can pretend all you want that you've got it together and you just need a few more tweaks to your life. But you're lying to yourself. And the truth is, if you're really honest with yourself, you know that to be true. If you're trying to hold it all together by what you do deep down, you go, man, I don't have it all together. And you try to put on a good face and pretend and I'm going to keep doing that. And then what happens? You lose your temper. You get frustrated or you blow it in some way. And then you're like, oh, no, I got to put my face back on to make it look good. And it's not true. None of us is perfect. None of us holds it all together. And we desperately need God to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. And so Jesus steps in the middle and he starts to show them that he's now here and what this means. And it's exploding their categories. And so when we think about what he's calling them to and what he's telling them here, when he's talking about he has now arrived and he is going to do for us what we can't do for ourselves, what do we do with this? It's hard. It's a hard change. But we humble ourselves and we come to him and we confess that we can't do it, that only he can do it. We say that it's only Jesus and what he's done for us. And in doing so, it's radically freeing. It is a new wine. It is a new way of operating. It is a new way of seeing things. When you come to the place of recognizing that you're more sinful than you ever imagined, but in Jesus, you are more loved and accepted than you ever could hope. You can breathe again. You don't have to be fake. You can confess your sins and he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And he begins to make us new. And so what do we do with that? When we think about that, what do we do and how do we apply that to our lives? And even even the story he's telling here. But now the bridegroom is with us and he's in our midst. What do we now do? And the first thing I would say to you is that we celebrate the grace of God. Just like as Jesus calls his disciples to celebrate uh, that the bridegroom is with them. Like you would at a wedding. Your closest friends, you celebrate with them. We too, as believers, when we understand the fullness of the gospel, that we are more sinful than we ever would want to admit, but we are more loved and accepted than we ever could hope, we should be celebratory people. We should be excited at who of who God is and what he's done for us and the great links he's gone to to love us and care for us. And so when Jesus says here about his disciples, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The spirit of that and the joy that comes with that should be true of us as believers. And you say, well, wait a second. 
Jesus was there literally with them at a certain time, and there's a context to what he's speaking, and he's not literally here physically with us in the same way today, and you're making that say something it doesn't say. But, but I want you to think about it like this. I don't, I don't think I am, but I want you to just think about it like this for a second. In John chapter 16, Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples, hours before he'll go to the cross. And he says to them, it's better for you that I go away, because if I go away, then I'm going to send the Spirit And the Holy Spirit's going to come in fullness, going to unite you to the Father and with me. And he's talking about how he's going to be present with us in all things. And so when Jesus goes to the cross and he lays down his life for us, and he does for us what we can never do, and he takes the sin that we, our sin upon himself, takes the wrath of God that we deserve, and he gives us his perfect righteousness, and he unites us to the Father in this way, and then his glorious resurrection, and then he ascends to right hand of the Father, and he sends the Spirit in fullness. Do you realize that we now have the fullness of Jesus and his work today more than they even had in that moment physically with Jesus? You have the fullness of God's completed work in your life now, today, right here. And so when I hear Jesus saying, can you make the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? That is us today, now in Jesus you have the fullness of God in your life with you at this moment because of what Christ has accomplished? And that's today in fullness. And when I think about what that means, he's with you. I'm going to stop for just a second. I preached this six times to myself. (laughs) The fifth was last night. And I was so overwhelmed. God so clearly said, I am with you always. In everything. It was so clear. And I wish I could tell you that happens to me every day. But it doesn't. But it did last night. I thought, I don't know how I stand up and get that across. And I still don't. It's a reminder to me that I can't. It's it's actually the point of the whole sermon. You can't do it. It has to be him doing it. And it was like God just tapping me on the shoulder and telling me that and showing me that over and over. And so I'm sorry, I'm a mess and I can't really tell you and explain it the way I want to. But to say that we should be a celebratory people, we should be so joyful that the God of the universe loves you so much that he's come to you to do for you what you could never do. And then he never leaves you or forsakes you. And he's with you in all things. And there should be a joy that marks his people in every way. He's always with us. Whatever you're going through, he's walking with you in it. And he doesn't leave you. And he doesn't forsake you. And I I just love the thought of Jesus saying, when the bridegroom is with you, how can you not celebrate? Go, yes, absolutely. That should be us in every way. That we recognize what Jesus has done for us. And when that is true, it's a joy that's abounding in everything. That's in every circumstance that we're okay. 
He's already come and he's already won and he's coming again. And we can rest in that. And no matter what comes at us, we know that to be true. I was thinking about the, the way to explain that. Or, and forgive me, this is probably not a great example. But a couple years ago, I, I went to bed. It was a Saturday night. Uh, I was watching A&M football game on TV. And it was right at the end. And our terrible quarterback throws an interception <laughs> with 30 seconds left. And they're going to lose to LSU. And I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. If you like LSU, great. I just don't like LSU football. <laughs> and I turned off the TV in disgust. Blah. I was like, whatever. I'm not going to let this upset me. I'm going to sleep. And I went to sleep. And I woke up the next morning. My alarm went off and I picked up my phone. And it said, Texas A&M 74, LSU 72. And I went, I didn't know A&M had a basketball game last night. 74 to 72. And then I did a double. A&M won the game in seven overtimes. The interception, the guy was actually down before he threw it, and it didn't count, and they got another. Anyway, A&M came back and won in the longest game in the history of college football. I went, what just happened? And I looked at my phone, and I went, and I watched the highlights, you know, the two-minute highlights, like in amazement. I can't believe that. And so when I got home after coming here and worshiping on Sunday, I went home, and I said to the boys, let's watch the overtime. Let, let's watch the Aggies beat LSU in seven overtimes. And I watched the whole thing, which is like an hour and a half long when it's seven overtimes, the, just the overtime. And every play was like fourth and 17. And I'm sitting there like, what's going to happen? I know they're going to win. No stress, no worry, just excitement about what's about to happen here. I don't know how they're going to do it, but they're going to do it. And I started thinking that's the way we should be as believers. We know the end. We know Jesus is one. We know that we are his. We know how much he loves us. We know that we are in him. Anything that comes at us, he says he's going to work together for our good in the, the scope of eternity. We can rest in that. We should be a people that is a joyful people that is celebrating who God is and what he's done for us in everything as we go in all things. But then the second thing I would say to you when we think about this Verse 34 and 35, he says, can you make the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? But then he says, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast in those days. And so, yes, Jesus is one. And yes, we can be joyful. And yes, we can trust him in all things in every way, every moment of our life. He's already won. But we live in what we often refer to, or, or theologically, we sometimes say we live in the already but not yet. We're still waiting for Jesus to return and the final consummation of all things. And as we live in this moment and in this time, we still live in a sinful, broken world. And we still have sin that clings to us. We still have our flesh that we're fighting. And so when Jesus talks about fasting, yes, we're still called to fast. We still fast today, but we fast now in reality in the light of this new wine, this new work of Jesus. And so we fast and we remove food and, and we're reminded of our need and it alerts us to how needy we are. It, alert, it alerts us to where we failed and where we don't do things well. And God brings us to mind and we seek his face and he meets us in that. And the spirit moves and it points us to Jesus and the finished work of Christ. He says, I love you this much. 
and I see you in the midst of it. I am with you and I am working and I'm doing this. And so we continue to fast today to be reminded of what is true of us. When we seek to go back to the self-sufficiency, when we seek to make the things in our life be about us rather than about God and what he's done, we fast. And God meets us in that midst. And we say, God, I desperately need you. And he says, yes, you do. And he meets you in the midst of it. And he begins to show you and love you and keep you. And so I want you to see and understand throughout the New Testament, Jesus talks about when you fast. You see the, the New Testament believers do it all the way through. We are called to fast. It is a helpful reminder as we fast and pray and seek the Lord and he meets us in that. And then the very last thing, and we'll end here, is we see this new work of Jesus. And it's all his doing and nothing else, this new wine, that we're not saved by our doing, but we're saved by what Jesus has done. And we get to now live out of that new identity. You are the beloved child of God because of what Jesus has done. And so in that, he meets you in the midst of your sin and in your struggles, and in your failures. And he forgives you, but then he also empowers you to live a new life. To live as a new creation, because you are. He invites us into the fullness of what he's created us for. And it's not in our power, but in his. But as we go along the way, he continues to move us from one degree of glory to another, and we're called to continue to pursue him, not because we're saved by that, but because we're his. Because we love him. Because he has bought us with a price and we are not our own. Because we get to now live this way because of who we are in Jesus. Oh, that we would hold fast to the new work of what he's doing and not go back to the old. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for the glorious good news of who you are and what you've done for us. I thank you that you don't leave us in our mess, but you've come to us to do for us what we could never do. Thank you that you tell us you never leave us or forsake us, that you are with us in all things. We pray that that would be the ever-present reality of our lives today. That when we forget that, that you would powerfully move to show us that truth. That we would be a people that are quick to lay things aside that are hindering us from following you. That we'd be a fasting people not as a way to earn our worth with you, but to be reminded of how great you are and what you've done for us. Give us eyes to see you in and through all things. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.